0: So, It's a special joy when your son comes off after praying for you and he slaps you on the shoulder and he says, go get him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, Caleb. Uh, we are in 1 Corinthians 15 and we're looking at the resurrection. And we're going to, I was hoping to go further this morning than, than we're going to get um, because this is really important. And that's I'm slowing it down. Paul kind of runs through, he makes some arguments, but then he's using some language that if we don't unpack it, if we don't talk about it a little bit, if we don't define some terms and things as we go through it, we may miss some significance of how important the resurrection is to our faith. I mean, we, we understand the cross really well. And we talk about the resurrection, usually when we say his life, death, burial, resurrection, we just kind of run over it. But Paul takes time in First Corinthians 15, and he's really focusing in on the risen Jesus, that this is so important. Like, yes, the cross is important, but the resurrection is that proof of what Christ was doing. It's, it's, that, it's that stamp of approval from the Father saying, this is my Son. He has accomplished all that He set out to do. And so Paul wants to make sure that the church understands, like, we can't divorce some of these doctrines uh, that we see progressive Christianity doing today. We can't divorce ourselves from these things. These are vital. If you want to call yourself Christian, you have to believe in the resurrection. You have to. And so Paul is going to be talking to us today, verses 12 through 23, and, and this continuing on in, his, in this, uh, this apologetic. And it was Needed in the time of Corinth, and it's needed today. So, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll start in verse 12. We'll go through 23. Uh, it'll be on the screen. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. You're welcome to that. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of different things I'm going to put up today, and. On your way out, if you didn't get notes uh, in the back, there's some notes in the back. So all those things, every once in a while I have lists and that, and I see people use their phone and take a picture. I printed it out for you. So uh, that's on the table on the way out. You can get up and get it anytime If I get talking, you want to get it, you can do that. Um, but it's there for you. If you're online, sorry, you're, you're just going to have to pause the video later and just go back and get it. Or I can email it to you, talk to the office. Either way. All right, starting in 15, verse 12. This is Paul speaking to the church. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That you would help us just really have this rooted in our our faith. That we be able to speak about the deep things that were accomplished because of the resurrection. That in a skeptical world, we would understand the beauty of what you have accomplished for us in the resurrection of Jesus is that proof, Father, that that he has done what you have asked him to do for us, to bring us salvation. So Holy Spirit, teach us. Help us to understand the depth that Paul is teaching here. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So verses 12 through 19, Paul gives a, a very thoughtful argument. I mean, he says here in verse 12, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So if Jesus is resurrected, why do some of you say that he is not or that the resurrection is not true? And so there were people in this time period that would say, we don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. We don't believe that that's happened. There was even some Jews, the Sadducees were a sect of Jewish leaders who did not believe in the resurrection. And so they would say, "No, no, this isn't real, this isn't true. Jesus wasn't raised. nobody's raised." And they would say, "So this is just a story or this is different." Uh, but there's three main views that I want to look at, but the predominant Jewish view was that of a resurrection. So the Jews uh, did believe in a resurrection. So the first one is this Jewish view. They believed in a resurrection, not, just not for the Messiah. That's an important part. See, they believe that there's a resurrection. And then here's all these passages. 1 Kings 17, 17 through 22, uh, Elijah raising a young man, the widow's son raising him from the dead as he prays over him, throws himself over the boy's body three times, lamenting and praying, and God raises this boy back to life. 2 Kings 4, 32 and 35, we see Elisha. Uh, also praying and bringing a young man back to life. In 2 Kings 13, 21, this is an interesting one. Elisha's in a resurrection story, and he's not even alive. He's actually in the grave. He's dead. He's buried. And they're getting ready to bury a man. And as the marauders are coming, they, they, they get scared, and they just throw his body on Elijah's grave, and he comes back to life and is resurrected. And then you see out of these other passages, Deuteronomy 31 16, Isaiah 26 19, they talk about God raising up or bringing back his people. So the Jews believe these are just some passages that the Pharisees would be teaching, that the Orthodox Jews would be teaching, like saying, This points to resurrection. God resurrects, He he has resurrecting power. He does this and He brings back in the last days. So when Jesus is talking with uh, after Lazarus' death with uh, Mary and Martha, they, they're thinking, yeah, Lazarus will be raised up on the last day. I mean, that's, that's the traditional view. Like, yes, we believe these passages of Scripture. We believe this testimony of God in the Old Testament. Lazarus will be raised. So there's this view that, yes, Jesus, or not, not Jesus, uh, sorry, I got ahead of myself. There's this view that, yes, um, God does do resurrection in the Jewish thought. But they would say it's just not needed for Messiah, so those examples, they would say, they point out that the creator of the universe, God, has power over death. It's God's power to exercise as he chooses. And any resurrection that occurred was to be understood to be solely by God's grace. So God would bring the resurrection, and it's by his grace. The understanding that makes Jesus' words and actions extraordinary come out in John 11, 25 and 25. He says this, Jesus says to her, he's talking to Martha here, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Here's the extraordinary thing the Jews said it wasn't the power of Elijah, it wasn't the power of Elisha, it it was God's power. It was his grace, his mercy. He's the one that does resurrection. And Jesus says, I am that power. So for the Jew, that's blasphemy. You've just equated yourself to God. You've just said that what is God's to do alone, you are that. So Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That I'm the one who gives new life. I'm the one who brings them back. And so that's an extraordinary claim. The problem is that during this time when Paul wrote, the Jews, this favor in particular, they believed in the resurrection, but what they believed is that it wasn't for Messiah. They didn't believe Messiah came to die. So when they hear these claims of Jesus and they see him crucified on the cross, this whole idea of resurrection, to them, it's okay that Jesus is resurrected, but he's just another guy. He's no different than those who will be resurrected in the end. Messiah doesn't come to die. Messiah comes to restore. And so they have a very different view. And Jesus comes and he changes what Messiah's role is, how they are to look at Messiah, how they're to understand Messiah. So he comes saying, no, the Messiah is to come to suffer and die and be resurrected. And they say, no, 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 the Messiah is to come and restore. He is not to die. So for some Jews, it's not a problem that Jesus was resurrected because Messiah wasn't to be killed and resurrected. So that's the thing. They're they separating. But Jesus says, no, I have a very different view of what Messiah means. And, he, and he's speaking this, and he's proclaiming things that are blasphemous, like he is the resurrection power and the life. So you have this Jewish view of, of resurrection. Then you have a Gentile view. And now the Gentile view tends to be more naturalistic, a naturalistic understanding of the world. And I think this is kind of where most of, you know, the arguments we hear today, if you're talking with someone about uh, faith and Christianity and the resurrection, you'll get a lot of these things. And you've probably heard a lot of these arguments, but they kind of fall more in this naturalistic idea. First, uh, it's scientifically impossible. Like, we don't observe that in the natural world. Like, this resurrection of life, we don't see that in the natural world. Now, I'm, you may say, well, we see it in plants every, after this winter, they're going to come back. We're talking about of, of humans, right? Like, we don't see this. We don't observe it. This isn't scientifically, it's possible. It's an impossibility. Or they would say, oh, it's a myth. This idea of Jesus, you know, they didn't bring this on. And you'll hear arguments, oh, it's a myth. Or it was made up or embellished. So as this idea of Christianity grew, they just embellished Jesus more and more and more. And eventually they said he was God, and eventually they claimed this, and eventually they claimed that. It's just embellished. Or they would say, or they borrowed it from other faith traditions. Well, we hear of resurrection over here, we see different things over there, and you know, I think these guys just pulled it in and borrowed from others. Or they would say, well, the body was stolen. Maybe you've heard that one. Oh, he wasn't resurrected, someone took the body. Uh, or Jesus didn't really die on the cross. The, the swoon theory or different things where he didn't really die, so he, doesn't, he didn't get resurrected because he wasn't killed. Uh, another one is the wrong tomb. Well, the women went to the garden, but he was in a borrowed tomb, and then when they went the next morning, and after all of this stuff that happened, they went to the wrong tomb, and the tomb they went to, it was empty, and they're like, oh, he must have been raised. And then, so that idea. Or they would say, maybe Jesus, this is one that I've, I've thought this was kind of, uh, funny as I was going through all this, possibly had a twin. Jesus had a hidden twin. <laughs> I, I don't know where that one even came from, but it is out there. There are people who say, well, he probably had a twin, or a close-looking relative. So when that relative was around after the, after the crucifixion, they said, oh, that's Jesus. It's like seeing someone off from afar. You know, it, it reminds me of, uh, of the movie uh, Notting Hill where they're talking about seeing famous people. And the one guy's like, you know, I saw, um, you know, uh, Topol once. And he's like, oh, really? Where did you see him? He's like, oh, he was over at, uh, uh, at this street at the crosswalk and that. And he's like, are you sure? He's like, what do you look like? And he's like, well, it was kind of far off. And he starts describing. And he's like, that, that doesn't sound like him at all. He's like, sounds like Ringo Starr or something. He's like, oh, well, yeah, maybe. Well, maybe. He's like, but you didn't recognize him? He's like, no, no. He's like. You no, know, that's really not a classic antidote. He's like, no, no, it's not really a classic. I'm sorry. You know, it's like, the guy was so far off. He's like, he kind of looked like somebody. I don't know. Someone else was crucified in his place. It was a conspiracy. In our day and age, that, that probably would get a lot of traction. It's a conspiracy theory. Uh, the disciples had hallucinated. Like, they didn't actually see him. They hallucinated Some would say, well, there was an appearance maybe, but it was a vision. It wasn't real. That's the whole reason in that one scene of the scriptures where we're seeing what is happening here. Jesus eats with them. He says, you know, touch me. I have flesh. I'm real. I'm not a ghost. That was their thought. Oh, he's a ghost. He's like, no, no, no. He eats with them. He has flesh and bone." Disappearance, they thought, was maybe a vision. Or the, I, this is the one that I, I think most of our culture is kind of in. Who cares anyway? Who really cares? Resurrect or not, what's, what's the big deal? Well, it's, it's really important. Verses 13 through 19, we, we have to follow Paul's argument. So he starts down this road of saying, what if... He wasn't resurrected. What does that look like then? So he says, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in this life, only we are, of all people, most to be pitied. So let's follow the argument really quickly again here. He says, it does matter. This this idea that we proclaim Jesus raised from the dead, this idea that people need to grapple with, this reality, this truth, it matters. He says this. Here's an here's a, a, uh, argument of hopelessness. If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. He says if it doesn't happen, then even Jesus wasn't raised. If, if no one's raised, Jesus wasn't raised. All right? So if Christ is dead, then our preaching is meaningless. He says, in fact, we're liars because we're saying God raised him and he is the son of God. He is, so what I'm doing up here by proclaiming those things, he says, if Christ isn't raised, Rob's a liar because he's saying God did this. If Jesus wasn't raised, then God didn't do that. And we're saying God's doing something or has done something or has accomplished something that he did not do. So he says, then our preaching is meaningless. So this, this idea of the gospel, it would become meaningless. He says, so then if Jesus is not raised, then death has, no, has power over him, and he's not the son of God. I mean, Jesus defeats death in the grave at the resurrection. So if, if he's not raised, then death wins. That whole idea of, of him being crushed and then put in the tomb, if he's not raised, then death had the final say. He's no different than you and I. In that sense, next part of this is if he is not divine, if he wasn't raised, then he is not divine. Then that sacrifice for sin was not sufficient. The whole idea of him going to the cross and being our sufficient sacrifice falls apart. Him being our high priest and being the offering, it's not sufficient. If Christ is not raised, Paul says he's not sufficient for our sins. He can't accomplish what he went to do on the cross. So when Jesus says it is finished, that would have been a lie. If his sacrifice is not sufficient, then sin is not paid for. That's a big one. If, if our sacrifice is not sufficient, then we are still in sin. It hasn't been paid for. We're still guilty. We still carry the weight of sinfulness. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus cannot save. That's what he's saying. He's saying if there's no resurrection, you have no Savior. We're bound to the law, and we're all guilty under the law. Like Paul's pointing to the hopelessness that comes without having a resurrected Savior. He says it's so important. So if the resurrection is not real, then Jesus cannot save us. And he says, and worse is the situation of those who trusted in Christ for salvation and have perished. Verse 18, he says, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, who believed this message, well, then if Jesus isn't raised, well, then they've perished. Like, you and I would still have today, we'd have this moment to change direction. But those who believed and died would have perished. Their eternity set. He says, like, that's, that's a very hard reality that you, we would have to deal with. We would say, oh, it was a false gospel. And those who believed it, then they have been cast out. Those who have fallen asleep, he said, would have perished. And what for us, well, verse 19, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only. So if Jesus isn't raised, if there is no resurrection, if the, if the Christian message in Christ is not true, if this salvation in Jesus alone is not true, he says, then we would only have hope in this life, and then we, of all people, would be most pitied. If this is not true then the Christian life becomes a spiritual joke. And you and I are the butt of that joke. If it's not true, what are we doing? Right? Paul says, if the resurrection is not real, then we have no hope to look forward to. And this religious life we put ourselves through is to be pitied. In fact, we are most pitied. Because those who live just for this world live by the world philosophy. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And if Christ is not raised, then we as Christians would be causing a lot of self-suffering. I mean, if Jesus is not raised, then why do we do this? Why would we gather? He's saying we would be most pitied because we are trying to make our way to God in a way that he does not accept. But Paul knows the resurrection is true. And in fact, last week we talked about it. He says there's witnesses to it. There's hundreds of witnesses. They met Jesus. They saw Jesus. He was still walking with them after the resurrection. Like He was here for a time teaching and preaching about the kingdom. They, they saw him. They ate with him. He appeared. He's like, it's true. We know it's true. And he knows that Just like Solomon of the Old Testament, he knows that man has eternity placed in his heart and that God has made us for more than just this moment. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Even Solomon in the Old Testament, as we're reading uh, his his. Wisdom to us, he says. This is we all know this. Like we all have eternity placed in us. We know there's something more. It's not just here and now. There's we're created for eternity. We're created for more. And Paul says, yes, we are. We're created for Christ to be in relationship with God. So in fact, this doctrine of resurrection, it's so important. That if you, if you don't believe in the, in the resurrection, you can't call yourself Christian. So those who would say, I believe in Jesus or the historical Jesus or I believe in the message of Christianity, I just don't believe in the miracles. I don't believe in the... And, and there are people who do that. They say, I just don't believe in that miraculous. I'm more of a naturalist. I, I, I just don't see all that. Well, then they have to remove the resurrection because that is a miracle. It is... It is the power of God on display showing that Christ is our Savior. So if you don't believe in that, you can't call yourself a Christian, at least a Christian that believes the revelation of God in the Scriptures. So let me hammer this home a little bit about some doctrine that, that rests on the resurrection. There's, there's five doctrines here. And and I'll read these passages, Sierra. So I had her mute these just in case. Uh, The divinity of Jesus, Romans 1 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, his divinity. So Jesus claimed that he is the power, he is the resurrection. And the Jews said, that's only God can do that. Only God gives this power, and it's by his grace and by his mercy. And Jesus says, I am that power. I have that. He claims to be God in that statement. So the resurrection of Jesus is the Father putting his approval on the Son, saying all that he professed and proclaimed and said is true. If Jesus was a blasphemer, if he blasphemed God and said, I am of the same essence as God, and I have these things, these abilities, these powers that only God alone can have. When he says to the person, your sins are forgiven, and they say, only God can forgive sins. And he says, right, I I can forgive sins. I do that. When Jesus makes those types of claims, would God resurrect one who was a blasphemer, who who would steal His glory. No. But the Father does resurrect the Son. It's that stamp of approval that, yes, He is divine. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man, and He's the Son of God. So there's that, that doctrine of the divinity of Jesus. Secondly, the sovereignty of Jesus overall, Romans fourteen nine. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Christ is over all. And you see, I'm, I'm pulling out of Romans. Paul is saying the same thing to the church in different places. He's preaching the same gospel. We've talked about that over and over. It's the same gospel. It's not his, his gospel. It's God's gospel. He says, and Jesus is over all. He's, he is divine and he is sovereign over all the living and the dead. Our justification, Romans 4:25, another doctrine that hinges on his resurrection. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. Without the resurrection, you cannot be justified. Our regeneration, 1 Peter 1, 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again, he's saying, Nicodemus, your regeneration, your being born again hinges on me rising on the third day. So our regeneration is based on his resurrection. And finally, our resurrection, that our hope of having resurrection, Romans 8, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So he says, just as Christ was raised, you too have the hope of everlasting life, of being raised to life again. And so we see that Here's five doctrines, Christian doctrines of, that we think about, and all of them would fall apart if we don't have the resurrection. Verses 20 to 23, Paul says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul simply states he has been raised. And he is the first fruits of all who have died in faith of the promises. The Old Testament saints to the Messianic believers, Jesus is the first fruits. Now, this idea. A first fruit is a significant statement, and it has a prophetic fulfillment. So here here's, we want to just take a moment and just look at this statement where he says, first fruits, what does that mean? Now, Jesus isn't the first one who has been resurrected. I've already talked about that. was others in the Old Testament. So what does it mean for him to be the first fruit? How does How does that work? Well, one, he is the only one who is divine, who is doing this salvation, this work of salvation. In Leviticus, this idea of first fruits offering was a, a sheaf of grain brought to worship to, to represent and anticipate the rest of the harvest to come, to, to represent the blessing of God, to anticipate a good harvest, the blessing of God to come. And so they would, they would come and bring the first fruits. To the temple. Well, Paul says this in Romans 6, 5. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus' resurrection anticipates our resurrection. So the first fruit offering, that, that grain offering, anticipates the, the harvest well, his resurrection it anticipates our resurrection. So, just as the Jews were assured of God's blessing on the harvest, we in Christ are assured of our resurrection. So, this idea that he's the first fruits—he's he, this offering, he's this first fruit offering—it's a fulfillment that is significant. the The first fruits feast was observed on the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. And you want to read about that, that's in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. But thinking about the Passion Week, Jesus celebrates the Passover, goes to the cross, is crucified, and, is, and dies. He is the sin offering. He is the Passover offering. Oh, and Leviticus uh, 23 is the place where you can read about the about the first fruit. And so... He fulfills the Passover, the resurrection. He is the first fruit offering. He is resurrected on the first day of the week when they would take the grain offering. He fulfills that too. It's a beautiful thing when we start seeing the fulfillment of Christ in in the Jewish uh, festivals and feasts. When he says statements about himself, they bring fulfillment. And this is... Resurrection is a fulfillment of the first fruits uh, festival, so Jesus rose from the dead the first day after the Passover Sabbath to be the first fruit offering. So this offering for the first fruits is a is is a bloodless offering. There's there's no there's no sacrifice for sin needed on this offering because they just celebrated the Passover lamb. So so Jesus, being our Passover lamb, he was already given just prior to the first fruit offering. So he, sin's already been dealt with. Guilt's already been dealt with. So Jesus died, and, and He ended the need for sacrifice, and His resurrection is the assurance of our resurrection to come and entrance into God's presence and kingdom. So He fulfills. He's the first fruit offering. He fulfills this messianic Feast. It's an amazing thing when you start seeing what Christ accomplished and what the resurrection shows. Paul says, by one man came death. So Paul's pointing to the fall of man and all men being fallen due to Adam, sin in the garden. He says, through Adam, we're all guilty. He fell and all of humanity fell with him. We were all born into sin. But he says, but by one man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Paul's statement is going to mirror what he teaches in Romans. Now this is kind of a long one, Romans 5, 12 through 21. This is what he says, "...therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given." But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. "...through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass." But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul makes a really short statement here in Corinthians, but he unpacks it to the Roman church. This is what he's saying. By one man through Adam, we've all have come into death, but by Christ And through his resurrection, we all have life. We come into life. So in Christ, all shall be made alive. He makes that statement that in Christ, so also in Christ, verse 22, uh, shall all be made alive. Now, the all in this statement refers to all who profess Christ, that, that they will all be part of the resurrection of life. But to be clear, every person will be resurrected either to life or to condemnation. John 5, 29, this is what we read there. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Paul's talking about the resurrection of life here. He says all who've put their trust and hope in Christ will have the resurrection of life. He's not making a statement for the resurrection of judgment here. He's just staying in this track, But I, I want us to be clear because when we read a statement, sometimes in these contexts and you hear the word all, who's the all? And, and in this passage, he's referring to those who have received. So this, this grace of Jesus, because of his resurrection, all can be saved. All can come to salvation through Christ. But if you don't receive it, if you don't believe it, we've talked about this earlier in the last couple of sermons, if you don't receive that gospel, it doesn't do any good to you. It doesn't get applied to you. So when he's making the all statement here, he's making it in reference to those who have believed this gospel that he's already talked about prior. So it's just not a blanket, Jesus was resurrected, so all of mankind now gets to go to heaven. All of mankind has the grace sufficient to get there through his blood and sacrifice if they would receive it. So that's the all. He says, each in order, Christ and then the rest, and that's at his second coming, his presence with us. So there's an order to it. He, to be the first fruits, he is the one who was raised, he is the one who goes before, it would be inappropriate for us to, to go before him. So he is raised and he goes into the heavenlies and at his return, we will all have our bodily resurrection. First Thessalonians four sixteen points to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. It's just pointing to that resurrection that will happen at his return that we all look forward to. We all have a resurrected body to look forward to. We all have a glorified body that we will receive in Christ. So, We see this argument that Paul is shaping here about the importance of the resurrection. It's easy to run through it and say, yeah, yeah, I got it, and move on. But this is so important. I mean, when we sing songs and we hear about his death on the cross, that should stir our soul because we know of what, what he's accomplishing. And when we sing songs and we and we sing of his resurrection, that should stir our soul because we know what he's accomplishing. Like, these things go hand in hand. They work together. It's so, it's so common today. Sad to say it's so common today that we have removed the authority of Scripture. We've removed the need of his virgin birth. We've removed the need of a Blood atonement, we remove the need of a resurrection. It just goes on and on and on. And Paul's saying if you start pulling these things away, you can't call yourself Christian, not with integrity, because you must believe these things. And the resurrection is vital, it's vital to our faith. We must believe this. Jesus was raised, because he was raised, we have salvation. And those who have died in Christ before us have hope eternal. And they're already in the presence of the Lord. And one day when Christ returns, their glorified bodies will be resurrected. If he returns while we're still here, they get to go first. You know, well, I wish I, (laughs) I hope I die before he comes just so I get to be first. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Anyway, um, will you stand with me? Let's pray. God as we think through this it's definitely an apologetic in the sense that we're we're looking at our faith today in such a way that it's just using logic and reason and understanding but God you're so good because our faith is logical there's reason there's understanding it's not based on a myth or, or, or a fantasy. Jesus, you really came and took on flesh. You really went to the cross for us. You died and you really were resurrected. So we believe in all that you've accomplished. We receive it. And we just stand in awe of your goodness, of your grace, and your kindness to man. You are the resurrection and the life. And we proclaim that in you is life and life abundant. So may we, just, may we just be encouraged today in our faith that no matter what the voices of this world may say, no matter what other people's views are, we hold to the truth and to the facts. It's logical. It's reasonable. It's sound. It's true so through you lord jesus we have eternal life so as we sing this last song about amazing grace may we just sing that from a place of joy amazing grace that saved wretches like us and we have the hope it's true it's secure it's 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 going to happen so when we sing it god i just pray that as we think about the resurrection in light of the resurrection that we would sing with just so much joy, knowing that one day, Lord, one day, we will see you face to face, and our hope will be fulfilled in that. We will know it because we will behold you. you now we just thank you for this. We thank you for Paul and just his being a vessel of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for him speaking to the churches in, in this way to really unpack all that was accomplished. Thank you, God, for revealing this to us. Again, another proof of your grace and kindness to us that you would make yourself known and that you'd want to be known and that you would want a relationship with us. So we just worship. We finish today just worshiping, proclaiming how great a grace we have in our Savior. It's in his name that we pray and worship. Amen.